I'd like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 91. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. That's God speaking, of course. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life I will satisfy him and let him behold my salvation. On this, the second month anniversary, I guess, of the tragedies of September 11th, I think these verses speak to us of the fact that no matter what is transpiring in this world, our foundation is in him, and he will be our strength and he will be our shield. Our Father, we're so grateful that this is true, that you have said that you will set our feet securely on high, those who trust in you, those who have lived according to your word, you have promised that we will behold your salvation. Father, I thank you for the Spirit of God who dwells in the hearts of your people. And I ask you each day to confirm within us that sense of your joy in our lives, of your Spirit working to draw us into a more intimate relationship with yourself, that we might truly be what you've called us to be in this world, in this life, reflectors of the glory of Christ. Oh, Father, we know that we are weak, but you are strong. We know that we often fail, but, you, but you're a God who forgives and cleanses and raises us up again. And even as we're looking at uh, uh, this particular passage of Scripture this morning, which again helps us to, to understand the, uh, the traps that are out there and the, the evil one who is trying to destroy the work of God, we know that in the end, you will prevail. Christ is victorious. The enemy is defeated. Help us, Lord, to always keep that in the forefront of our thinking. And as we study your word, Lord, may it live within our hearts to strengthen us for this day and for each day ahead of us, however many days you give to each of us, and that we might be used to draw others into your kingdom. We thank you for hearing our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. In the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 28, we find a, a story, a sad story, that is related to us that has to do with the humiliation of a man whom God had blessed with tremendous potential and great opportunity. Here was a man that, that God anointed to be the king over Israel, first king in Israel. He was, he was taller and stronger than anyone else in the land. He was regal in appearance. He had everything going for him and even had the hand of God upon him in his initial years. However, the scripture, as you know if you've studied it very often, repeatedly makes the warning that pride leads to destruction. And I believe that Saul, King Saul, is one of the most profound examples of that in all of scripture. Because given all of his superior physical attributes and the opportunity that he had to serve God in a way that would have been a precedent for later kings to follow this high-profile position, he decided to try to do the job in his own strength. This is simply a restatement of that phrase you probably have heard even in your own ears from an individual. I am a self-made man. <laughs> I have earned what I have earned. I have established what I have established. Sounds like Nebuchadnezzar on the roof 
of his palace in Babylon. Is this not great Babylon which I have built? He did not seek God's strength and God's wisdom in leadership of the land. How, how it contrasts with Solomon, at least in Solomon's initial encounter with God and where he said to God, I don't ask for riches, I don't last, ask for length of life, I ask for wisdom. And God granted him all of those things. Although the Holy Spirit pursues us and he seeks to draw us to himself through Jesus Christ, he does respect our free will. And he allows us to walk in disobedience if we so choose. And Saul did. But as we know, at least from Scripture, disobedience has a terrible consequence to it. And God allowed the Philistines to invade the land. Now, the Philistines had invaded the land before. The land of Israel had been invaded numerous times before. So this was nothing new. And it was Saul's responsibility, now that he was king, to defend the land from the invader. That's what a king was for at that particular time in history. And, and no matter how large the Philistine force was, if Saul had been faithful to God, if he had been walking in God's ways, and if he'd cried out to the living God, God would have given him victory. Even as he did Gideon over 150,000 enemy soldiers with only 300 of his own. I mean, the odds couldn't be any worse. Certainly, the odds were better. But Saul had walked the road of disobedience and unrepentance so long that he was so far estranged from God that he would not yield. He would not do what it took for him to do. He would not humiliate himself. He would not bow the knee before God and say, I have sinned and I have done wrong. Please, God, forgive me and, and help me. And I think God would have heard him. But even in his extremity, he wouldn't turn. He wanted God's help, yes, but without a transformed heart. So God would not help him. And so what does he do? Well, as we read last week, he decides to go to the enemy, which shows you how far he had gone in his estrangement. He went to the enemy to seek help. He called upon a medium, a witch, as it says in the King James Version, in order to find the help that he needed. And so he went to a place nearby called Endor, and he met in the middle of the night with this woman. And he asked her to bring up Samuel for him at that particular time. By God's grace, Samuel spoke to Saul. Not by the medium's power. A medium has no power over the dead. A medium is simply a voice of the evil one, a voice of evil spirits. Someone who pulls a wool over people's eyes. A necromancer never truly communicates with the dead. Definitely not with the dead who are in God's presence. But God allowed Samuel to come and to speak to Saul. And of course the words that he heard from Samuel were devastating words. In 1 Samuel chapter 28 verse 19. Moreover the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. More tragic words could not have been heard by Saul. Everything he stood for was to be destroyed. Not only his life but his sons and his eldest son which of course he had wanted to become his successor but that had already been taken from him, at least by the word of God. 
but that his whole reign would come crashing down because he was the deliverer of Israel. He was the one who was to command the troops and ward off the evil one, uh, ward off the enemies. And, and here he was going to be destroyed. His army would be destroyed and the Philistines would be victorious. Talk about a legacy, terrible legacy that he would leave behind. Well, let's read the latter verses of chapter 28. Then Saul immediately fell full length upon the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. Also, there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul and, said, and saw that he was terrified and said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you, and I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to your words which you spoke to me. So now also, please, listen to the voice of your maidservant. Let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. However, his servants together with the woman, uh, woman urged him and he listened to them. So he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. And the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly slaughtered it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. She brought it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. Well, Saul's reaction to the message that he heard from Samuel was as we might expect. He was devastated. Well, we, if we put ourselves in his place, we know that's exactly how we would feel, I'm sure. There was nothing he could do to alter the prophecy that had been proclaimed by Samuel. It was fini. The punctuation point was there. He would die the next day. He had consistently disobeyed God's word and he had rejected God's mercy on occasion after occasion, even as we note it through this particular book of 1 Samuel. And now it was time for him to pay the piper, as it were. The tragedy, of course, I think is doubled by the fact that he will not die alone, but he will take his sons with him in death, even that wonderful person, Jonathan, whom we have discussed and who was so different from his father, as well as Israel, the Israelite army would also perish in the process. So Saul's sin bore broad calamity. Just as David later, when he would sin, the sin of, of enumerating the people after God had said, don't do it, it would lead to, to thousands dying in Israel because of one man's sin. Saul, we discover in this passage, was weakened by hunger as well as Saul's dreadful words. And so when those words fell on his ears, they hit him like a hammer blow. And the scripture tells us he fell prostrate on the ground inside this woman's house or tent. And both the medium and his companions, Saul's companions, the two had, who had gone, gone with him to Endor, were very disturbed, particularly when they saw that Saul was absolutely terrified. I mean, he had almost become petrified by what he had heard from Samuel. They want, uh, this medium now, uh, she doesn't want Saul remaining around there. <laughs> Obviously, he is the one who had cast all the mediums and, and uh, spiritists out of the land, and uh, she knew that 
if, if this was the Saul of old, her life was utterly in danger. But of course, he had said to her that she was okay. She was just to do what he asked. And so he did, but she didn't trust him. And she wanted him as far from her house as she could get him. And so the medium urged him to allow her to set bread before him that he might eat and have the strength to go away. <laughs> she just wasn't saying that. Now, he was weak partly from not having eaten for at least 24 hours. It tells us he hadn't eaten all day and all night. I, I suppose we could assume that was at least 24 hours. But he had no interest in food because something far greater than food had just plastered him to the ground and he was frightened death. He'd been given a death sentence and, of course, was extremely emotionally distraught. However, when his two companions joined with the woman and said, oh, you've got to eat, Saul. You just must eat, Saul. We need your leadership, Saul. You must eat. We've got to go back to the army. We've got to get back to the camp. And so he finally relented. And I think they helped him up. It says he got up from the ground and sat on the bed. I think they helped him up and sat him down. And then the woman went to prepare a meal. She didn't just set bread before him. The scripture tells us that she killed the fatted calf and baked bread from scratch. I mean, this isn't quick food. You know, this isn't fast food. This isn't something she threw in the microwaves and here's Saul. I mean, she had to kill the animal, bleed the animal, carve off the meat, grind the grain, make the flour into bread dough, cook. I mean, this was a few hours he was sitting there while this took place. They finally she was finally able to set a meal before the three of them, the three men that were there. And in a way, it's sort of Saul's last supper, when you think about it. After they had eaten much to the relief of that, goes the roundabout way, as I mentioned to you before. Endor's right here, and Saul was here. This is Mount Gilboa. He was on the southern western slope, not too far from Jezreel. He was camped right here. The Philistines were camped here at Shunem. And so Saul, in order to get to Endor, I'm certain he went this way around to avoid passing near the Philistine camp and crossing their line of communication, which would have been from Shunem to Megiddo and back down this way. So certainly he went around this way to get there. Roughly 10 miles would have probably been his journey that he took in order to get to Endor. And so now he has to retrace his, his uh, walk and come back to the army that was located near Jezreel. Let's read on into chapter 29. Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, while the Israelites were camping by the spring which is in Jezreel. It's called the spring of Harod. And the lords of the Philistines were proceeding on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were proceeding on the rear with Achish, then the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or rather these years? And I have found no fault in him from the day he deserted to me to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Make the man go back, that he may return to his place where you have assigned him. And do not let him go down to battle with us, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For what could, for what could this man make himself more acceptable? For with what could he make himself acceptable 
to his Lord. Would it not be with the heads of these men? Is this not David, of whom they sing in the, in the dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Sometimes we become confused if we don't look at the Scripture and realize that the Scripture is not necessarily organized chronologically. Chapter 29 precedes chapter 28 in chronology. The events of chapter 29 occur before the story we just read about Saul going to Endor because the Philistines are not even at Shunem yet when chapter 29 is, is recorded. They're at Aphek. 29 is where it is because of the sequence into chapter 30 because the concern is describing what David will be doing because 29 focuses on David, chapter 30 focuses on David, and David goes from Aphek down to Ziklag and carries out the, the things that we discover in chapter 30. So it's put there rather than before chapter 28. So if we just think of it that way, we won't uh, become confused. So we back up a few days here from the story we just read, and we have a record of events that were occurring in Philistia before Saul even went to visit this medium that was at Endor. Verse 1 of this chapter, 29, describes the gathering of the Philistine forces together. By the thousands, by the hundreds, we're told, they're gathering together before they even march on Shunem. As we noted, Shunem is right here, north of Jezreel. This little mountain here, the mountain of the prophet, they sometimes, or the teacher, they call it, Mount Mora, and Endor is right there. Shunem is there. Jezreel, where, where Saul was or would be, is right there. The place we're talking about right now is here. This is Aphek. And that is the place where the Philistines are gathering. Their, their forces are coming from the many different cities and towns of Philistia, and they're gathering together at one place so that they could march as one on Shunem. They will march north. This is the, the Philistine area down here. And this is the plain of Sharon, which at that particular time was under Philistine domination. Israel, you can see, was inside the red line. The red line was approximately the boundaries of Saul's kingdom. The plain of Sharon was usually Israelite, but at this time it was under Philistine domination. So they were marching up here to Aphek. Now, Aphek is about nine miles in from the Mediterranean Sea, and it is on the eastern outskirts of modern Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv, Jaffa are right in, in through here. Jaffa, or Jaffa as it is today, Jaffa, is south of uh, Tel Aviv. In fact, we have a slide I took from Joppa looking at Tel Aviv through a kind of a hole in, in the wall. It's kind of interesting to see the high-rise buildings through this wall, which is a very ancient uh, wall at uh, Joppa. But uh, they've, they've gathered here at uh, the little town of Aphek so that all their forces would be together for massing and marching to the, to the north. They were going to march up a route that is called the Via Maris, or the Way of the Sea. And that particular route, which comes out of Egypt and comes up and connects most of the Philistine cities together, up here and uh, then to Aphek, and it goes north, and it goes through a pass here. This is Mount Carmel up here. And as Mount Carmel reaches out this way, it's pretty hilly through here, and there's a series of passes 
from the plain of Sharon to the plain of Jezreel, two flat areas which are divided by this mountainous area. And the passes that go through between the two plains are very crucial areas for marching. And Megiddo was one of the principal fortresses to guard the pass on the Via Maris, the main highway here, that came across the plain of Jezreel and over onto the plain of Sharon. And so they must have marched probably past Megiddo and then straight over here to Shunem, which is across the, uh, the valley of Jezreel. We're told in the passage that Achish's forces were apparently the last to arrive on the scene and that David was proceeding, we're told in that uh, verse 2, on the rear with Achish. So all the forces have gathered. Achish's force seems to be arriving last. And, and David and Achish are at the rear of that force. And David, of course, is with Achish because if you remember from the previous chapter that David had been assigned by Achish to be captain of his personal bodyguard. So David would have been riding with or walking with, probably Achish was riding. David would have been with Achish. We discover in the passage that when the other military leaders who were there at the scene discovered that David and an armed force of Hebrews was with the force that came from Achish, they were, <laughs> they were incredulous. What? You've got Israelites in our army while we're going to fight Israelites? Are you crazy or what? Is basically what they were thinking. They were understandably upset. In World War II, you and I know, that one of the tragedies that occurred in California was the internment of Japanese Americans for the very reason that there was fear that those Japanese Americans would revert to serving their former homeland or the homeland of their ancestors in the midst of war. That same paranoia is the paranoia here that overswept the Philistines. We, we, we can't have these guys. Even if David and his men have defected, we, we can't have them in our army. And so they challenged Achish concerning David's presence with him. And what is interesting is that Achish enthusiastically endorses David. He doesn't say, well, I'm just hoping he'd be okay. He, I mean, he gives him a double plus here. This guy's a good guy. He's my chief bodyguard. Well, after all, how can you challenge him? He refers to David as a deserter from Israel who has served him well over the days. And then he changes that to years. It actually was 16 months uh, approximately up to this time, almost 16 months. And so that's a little bit of an exaggeration to say years in, in plural there. But that's basically what he says. Interestingly, we discovered that the Philistines have remembered the little song that the Israelite ladies sang after David had defeated Goliath, remember? And it was repeated in this passage here. The Philistine commanders are telling Achish, one of the five Philistine lords or kings, he's saying, they're saying to him, don't you remember the song? Saul has slain his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. And who were those tens of thousands? <laughs> Philistines. <laughs> right. So this is a good thing, huh? They also knew that it was this very man who had been Saul's principal military commander before he got in trouble with Saul and that he had defeated the Philistines on numerous occasions. He had never lost a battle with the Philistines. How many Philistines had David personally killed? We don't know. Probably not 10,000. The song, of <laughs> course, was exaggerated, but we, we, we get the idea there. 
they were afraid. No matter how loyal David had seemed to Achish up to this point, they were afraid that when the battle grew hot, David would switch sides and they would have a, an enemy in their midst on the wrong side of the battle line. And they would be sandwiched between Saul's force and David's force. And so they wisely reasoned. Well, sure, there may be a rift between David and Saul, but what better way could David heal that rift than with the heads of our men? If David presents your head, King Achish, and my head as commander of the force, and gives them to Saul, is Saul still going to hate David? Probably not. It's hard to know what was going through David's mind right at this moment exactly. His deceptions, his flat-out lies that he had told to Achish, had gotten him into this predicament where he is massing with Philistine forces to go attack his people Israel. Not a good place for the future king of Israel to be. But I believe, as strange as it might sound, he was trusting God to get him out of this mess. He knew that if worse came to worse and he did have to go to the battlefield, he could always desert in the heat of battle. When it was all this confusion, he could kind of slip away with his men. Or he could actually become a fifth column and fight for Israel against the Philistines, which of course he knew would be a very difficult thing to do, but he could do that. I think that there is little doubt that David would not have fought against his own people. David would not have fought against Saul. David would not have fought against Israel. Whatever he had to do, he would not have done it because he would be fighting not only his own people, but the people of God. And to fight the people of God is to fight God from his perspective. And he wasn't about to do that. Now notice, you remember how we've read in this, uh, in, in the book of 1 Samuel, how he went out of his way to not touch Saul. He had two opportunities to kill Saul. He did not do it. Once in a cave and once while Saul was sleeping in his camp, he, he was right there. He could have just, and it had all been over with Saul, but he didn't do it. He was not going to touch the Lord's anointed. So is he going to do it now? Not likely. If he were seen in the Philistine ranks and Saul was killed, even though he had had nothing to do with it, he would have ruined his chances to become king over Israel. As we read on into this uh, 29th chapter at verse 6, Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been upright, and your going out and your coming in with me in the army are pleasing in my sight, for I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, you are not pleasing in the sight of the Lord's. Now therefore return, go in peace, that you may not displease the Lord's of the Philistines. And notice David's response. This is just incredible. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? And what have you found in your servant from the day when I came before you to this day, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the king? But Achish, uh, let me inject at this point. From what we have heard about David so far, we could say, David could have made it in Hollywood. Let me clue you. <laughs> but Achish answered and said to David in verse 9, I know that you are pleasing in my sight like an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he must not go with us up to battle. Now then, arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who have come with you. And as soon as you have arisen early in the morning and have light, depart. 
So David arose early, he and his men, to depart in the morning, to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. <laughs> it is significant, I think, that when Achish spoke to David, he uses the divine name. This is a Philistine king, a pagan king, a worshiper of Dagon, the god of the Philistines. And yet when he speaks to David here in this chapter, he says, as Yahweh lives. He doesn't say as Dagon lives. He says as Yahweh lives, which I think is not an insignificant thing. What is exactly implied by that, we can only speculate. But certainly it meant that Achish acknowledged that David served Yahweh and that David had not sold out Yahweh to turn to Dagon or any other Philistine god. He acknowledged that David still served Yahweh. In addition, I think, it meant that Achish respected David and he also respected David's God for whatever reason. He may not believe in the power of Yahweh at this moment, but because David serves him, he offers respect and so he says in Yahweh's name. What we discover in this passage further is that Achish has been totally deceived by David. It's clear in verse 6 where he says of David, You have been upright and pleasing in my sight. I have found no evil. He says, I have found no evil in him. I have found no evil in him. What he means, I have found no disobedience, no disloyalty. He is totally loyal to me. He has sworn to be my vassal and he has served as a vassal very well. He has not even caused a moment of doubt to appear in my mind concerning his loyalty. Well, we know, of course, from the passage that we read uh, a week or two ago, that David was out killing the Philistines' allies and then telling the Philistines he was killing Israelites, which, of course, he was not doing. And Achish swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. And I think Achish wanted to believe him. And so Achish did believe him. And I think God played a role in this, of course, in helping Achish to believe it. Because even though God is not for, for deception and lying, David was God's man and David was going to have to be bailed out here and God was going to do the bailing. When Achish told him that the uh, military commanders did not want him in the army and that he was to go back to his assigned post, go back to Ziklag, go back to the place that I've given to you, defend those frontiers. While we're in the north, we're going to need a s protection in the south anyway because all the armies are going to be up north and the land will sort of be uh, naked to, to attack. So you, you be down there to protect the southern border. David tested the limits. David, I think, with feigned incredulity and disappointment. Oh, no, you mean I can't go with you? Oh, this is so terrible. Inside, he's just saying, hooray, praise the Lord, hallelujah. David says, what have I done that I cannot help you fight your enemy? David made this protest so that Achish could not see that David was delirious with joy. That God was, in fact, bailing him out that God was lifting him out of the hole which he had dug for himself by, a, by defecting to the Philistines, which God had not commanded him to do, and then lying to Achish flat out on numerous occasions about what he was really doing. David wrote a psalm. Maybe it directly refre reflected this event, maybe not. doesn't say in the introduction, but in Psalm 40, the first three verses we read this. I waited patiently for the Lord, 
and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. David could write that later. Thinking about this event or not, I don't know. But it certainly applies because God is lifting his feet out of the miry clay, out of a pit he has dug for himself here, and putting his feet on the rock. And God is going to grant to him the kingdom which he has promised to him. Oh, it won't be easy. It's going to be a little bit of a struggle actually acquiring the kingdom after Saul dies. But he will get it, and God will put a new song in his heart and in his mouth, and he will sing that new song. And I think that new song was already forming inside him at this very moment because certainly in his mind, he was human. And certainly in his mind, he was thinking, how am I going to get out of this? I can't fight my own people. And he saw how God was working to get him out of this situation. Achish's response to David's protest indicated how totally blind he was to David's true character. He says, you are like the angel of Elohim to me. You're like a messenger of the gods to me. Here he does not use the name Yahweh. He uses the more generic plural name Elohim. You're a messenger of God. Oh, David was a messenger of God. But Achish wasn't getting the message from God through David at this time. He will eventually. Well, we, we don't have time to pursue this further, but I want to say that David had to be really careful. Even at this point, David had to be very careful how he reacted to Achish as Achish commanded him to go south. He couldn't say, huh, no problem, I'll go. He had to act really, really upset and disturbed that he was going to have to do this and he couldn't be there with uh, Achish. And he had to keep that appearance up until he got clear down to Ziklag because he would be passing through Philistine territory all the way. And if other Philistines saw he, he, him and his army, uh, he and his army going by having a party, singing songs and, you know, hip hooraying, they would have gotten the word up to Achish. Your vassal David is a liar. So David had to be very, very careful. But as we're going to see next week, David was lifted out of this problem because another problem needed him right then and there. And so the enemy attacks here, the enemy attacks there. God sees it all. God can deal with it all. And God will move us where he needs to move us even sometimes if we don't understand why. Why are you taking me out of this situation? I'm having so much success, oh Lord. Why are you taking me out here and putting me over there where it seems like the, the backside of the desert? God has a plan. God has a purpose. And David was needed elsewhere and his army. And God would use him to do that.